Welcome to Jason the Movie Nods. I'm Jason Sachs. I'm Eric Hoffman. And we're continuing our binge of the films of Masahiro Shinoda. Shinoda, excuse me. Shinoda. With, uh, yeah. <laughs> Double Suicide and the, let me get the exact title right, The Scandalous Adventures of Bunraken. Right. As well as Sharaku. Right. Uh, one movie is like a dead-on classic. Yes. Double Suicide. Oh, Fascinating, yeah. amazing film. The other two are uh, also very interesting movies, I think. And last time I asked you what connected the films together, this time it's pretty clear it's the arts and the performing arts mm-hmm. and the involvement of the arts and how it affects the people involved in them. Well put. <laughs> is that why you connected them? Well, yeah. Uh, so Double Suicide is is uh, based on a extremely uh, well-known um, Kabuki and also Bunraku play. It's been adapted for both forms. So there's uh, Bunraku is the puppet theater. And we all know Kabuki um, by um, by a playwright uh, who is... Well, you know, when the West, after Japan opened to the West and serious study of Japanese literature commenced by Europeans and Americans, Westerners, uh, and uh, um, they were looking to name some Japanese author to be the Japanese Shakespeare. There was a need for that, apparently. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh i'm sorry just a very western way of looking at the world yeah we'll try and fit it in our own boxes right yeah <laughs> so um this um this film is based on the love suicides of uh see if i can pronounce it correctly Nijima? Anijima, yes. By Monzaman Chikamatsu. Chikamatsu. So I gotta probably... say, by the way, before we did our before we started our binge of these Japanese films, I would have tripped mm-hmm. over that name and now it just all tumbles off yeah. the tongue. All right. I'm an American Chikamatsu. who's learning. So um he's it's not a it's not a an exact comparison or even a fair comparison, but it probably is accurate in the sense that the relative value or or place in the literary pantheon uh, that Chikamatsu has is is similar to that of Shakespeare. Though stylistically, of course, of course, they're like worlds apart, right? Literally, yes, literally and literally, <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so are literarily um <laughs> the 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 plot of the love suicides is it's very familiar to the japanese so this is a film that is going over territory that is very well explored um by japanese theater goers not so much by cinema goers because interestingly enough there isn't really a tradition in Japanese film for uh, adaptation of Japanese theater. It's mostly 
novels uh, that are uh, adapted into film form. I'm not sure exactly why that is. I don't know if it's because the Japanese have such a high regard for the theater because it's so um, so much a fixture of of Japanese culture that that to take it out of its theatrical um, context and, and to place it into a new art form is somehow um, disrespectful. I, I I don't know, but for some reason it it just doesn't happen all that often. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So there are adaptations of Chikamatsu's work um, in Japanese film, and, but they're all fairly slavish adaptations. They don't take very many liberties with the subject matter. So Shinoda's film, uh, probably in the spirit of the Japanese New Wave, obviously takes some pretty pretty significant and obvious liberties with the with the subject matter uh first and foremost it's it's a metatextual film right it's kind of like firmly postmodern film so it yeah opens with uh, uh images of the backstage of a of a uh bunraku which puppet theater um stage um as the performers are preparing for the play so they're getting their dolls ready and um all of the um what is what are the names of the the puppeteers there's a name for them begins with a k no it's not coming back to me kudoko yes so they're donning their kudoko gear which is you know that black uh outfit that they wear with the, the sort of mesh screen hat so it's meant to obscure them on the stage so that uh all of the attention is given to the puppets Almost look like ninjas. Look a little bit like ninjas. They're they're sort of menacing looking, and yeah. uh, Shinoda uses that so well in this film. Put a bookmark uh, in the use of the term menacing because it's something we should we should come back to. Okay, I'll put a put a post it on it. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, yeah, and then there's this conversation, this telephone conversation between, uh, and I had to look it up. But it, it's a conversation between Shinoda himself and the screenwriter uh, of the film, uh, whose name is Tomioka Teiko. Mm-hmm. And she also co-wrote another Chikamatsu adaptation with Shinoda in the mid-80s called Gonzo, the Spearman. Uh, which I, you know, honestly would have been probably a great addition to this episode but probably too much <laughs> tetralogy <Yeah>. would <laughs> be too burdensome. So we'll have to save that film for a later date. Uh, we'll put a post-it on that one. Uh, so yeah, they're having this conversation about um, how he's found the perfect location for the, the final scene of the film, which is the discovery of the, the, uh, or, or the, the suicide and then the eventual discovery of the two lovers. Uh, and, and I want to yes. interrupt there and say the history is all backdrop and the tradition is all backdrop, but this film for someone like myself who has virtually no experience with the Japanese theater, right. this was a remarkable film, both in terms of the postmodern elements of it mm-hmm. um, and just the cinematography and the emotions, the raw emotions 
he's able to conjure up in this story. Um, like the best Shakespeare adaptations, this is a film that takes you out of the source matter, the, mm. the source subject, and instead just really brings everything to so much more of a dramatic light. And there's almost a sense among the actors, and I know you're going to talk about the acting in a minute, there's almost a sense in the actors of almost this liberation that you see from an actor who's doing Shakespeare, where the lines are just a gimmick. And it's what they do with them that makes it uh, a real interesting acting challenge for them. And, and and I felt that from the actors in this film as well. Like, they knew their roles so well in a way that you can only know it because you've grown up with this play that uh, to bring these characters to life is really where the effort is. And so there's kind of a deeper level of performance here that I found really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, and now you can talk about uh, well, yeah. <laughs> our favorite yeah. actress. Oh, the, the lead actor in this film is a, is a, um, a famous uh, Kabuki actor. Oh, that's no which, more, which I thought more. it was. In, yeah. I thought, I thought it was quite interesting because he doesn't really, you know, like um, we spoke about demon pond. And uh, the actor in in that film, whose name escapes me at the moment, um, how he brought a very theatrical performance to that film, mm-hmm. and it felt like he was acting on stage, right? Um, whereas in this film, the lead actor, even though he has a kabuki background, I thought I found his performance to be very filmic. He didn't seem to overact in the way that that uh, one is expected. The the type of performance that one is ex- would expect to see in a kabuki theater versus the type of stylized performance that's better suited to film. That actor was really... Thomas Thomas Oboro Bondo. That was in Demon Pond, right? Demon Pond, yeah, right, exactly. How anyway, are, you keep, uh, keep going because you're. Well, yeah, I I just found that very interesting. Um, so so there's, you know, there's another example of the, the meta aspect of this film, right? It's calling bringing attention to its artifice, and it's especially bringing attention to itself as a film, mm-hmm. as a, a filmmaking enterprise versus a a theatrical. So it's 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 very much foregrounding cinematic language all throughout the film. I felt. Yes. In a way that resonates with Shinoda's other films, um, as well as resonating with kind of the larger cinematic language he's playing with at the time. This is an example of, I can think of other films that, that are like this. One that immediately comes to mind is rear window, mm-hmm. which is that it seems to be to me an example of pure film. Everything about this movie is is a cinematic experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know how else to um, to express it except to say that um, you get a very uh, tangible sense of the cinematic elements of it all throughout the film. 
in rear window, the whole language of the film is there for you to see. It's so foregrounded. Uh, it's a beautiful thing because you can still get lost in the story. I mean, you can still watch rear window um, and become completely immersed in the narrative that's unfolding. And the same thing with this film as well, even though these cinematic elements are foregrounded and they're sort of like part of the narrative of the film is the narrative of the film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and Shinna is constantly bringing your attention back to it. He's constantly reorienting you and bringing you out of the film in, in a way um, that isn't, I don't think it's disruptive. You know, I think it's actually, it adds a level, <clears throat> excuse me, it adds a level of um, artistry to it. It's almost like a, it's almost like sedimentary la layers, you know, uh, to I, this film. I really like the comparison to Hitchcock and to Rear Window because mm -hmm. Rear Window is one of the most constructed films you can imagine. Everything's artificial and right. yet everything feels comfortable and react and you're able to react to it. Part of it comes from the amazing right. performances, but also it's the mise-en-scene yeah. and the way yeah. he constructs the character arcs. Um, somewhat smarter than me mentioned um, how he brings even like a minor supporting character like Miss Lonely Hearts to life in that film. And you get such right. tremendous empathy for her watching that film, even though she's someone who you literally never hear her voice mm -hmm. nor know her real name. Um, and because of that, like the that's why that movie is such a masterpiece in part. Um, right. Double Suicide, as you say, he's playing with these postmodern elements in a way that gives the film a really uniquely cinematic feel. And it is a unique film because of the way he's playing with those elements. Uh, the the movement of those Kuriko stage, the stagehands throughout mm -hmm. the film as almost right. like a Greek chorus that's leading these characters towards these their ultimate fate. They're they're right. moving them in the same way you might imagine Oedipus and Clytemnestra uh, connecting to each other in the way that's wrong because yeah. the chorus knows this is what the fates require, and that gives this film this really interesting resonance where it's a modern take for modern feels modern even now sixty years after it was made, yeah. whatever oh, yeah. it was fifty five years, but also. Mm -hmm has this very modernistic take in the term in the, in the modernistic way of putting those elements up front, making you aware the entire time you're watching a film. But at the same time, I don't know about you, Eric, but I found myself so interested in the actual storyline. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, like I said, it's the same thing with rear window. You can because it, become this, completely absorbed in the narrative. Yeah. It, it's this tragedy of, mm -hmm emotions and lusts and greed and anger and resentment and um there's just so much kind of pain in this movie that it really just like explodes off the screen in a lot of ways and there's a number of scenes that are in incredibly powerful but i mean uh, uh kohuru being pursued by uh jihei and jihei throwing away his entire life to pursue this prostitute yes because she thinks he loves her and meanwhile the wife is kind of suffering at home with her obligations her societal obligations she is she knows probably that he's cheating on her 
but he, she wants it within certain limits based on her society. Um, and so there's this whole interesting, like fascinating level. That's a very kind of traditional Japanese societal element on top of it, on top right. of the Japanese creative element. And so this movie kind of works in all these multiple ways where it's in dialogue with Japanese society. It's in dialogue with Japanese tradition. It's kind of all, like every Shinnedom film. It's um, in dialogue with the modern times he's living in as well. The freedom of women to become who they want to be. And then it's in dialogue with just the beauty of creating this film. That's just a stunning vision. Right. This is some of the most beautiful. He's done some astounding black and white films, but this is really just a gorgeous, gorgeous film. And it's, decided... it's a noir in its own different way compared to, um, you know, compared to uh, the, not spacing on the name of the gambling movie that we love so much. Hail Farm. Yeah, flower, of course. Yeah. So he decided to to shoot this in black and white because, uh, even though it would, it's based on Kabuki and Bunraku, and obviously would benefit, uh, from a co color palette, uh, much as Burakan and and um, the other film uh, that we're going to speak about. Definitely, both of those films benefit from a color palette, and and Shinada's is masterful as use of color. I think we're in agreement there. Um, but he said that it reminded him of a, a family drama. And then these, these, they're called the shomengeki. Apparently <laughs> it's the genre of Japanese film, which I'm not too familiar with, but apparently it was um, quite popular in the 1950s. Uh, so it's associated <clears throat> much as uh, Hollywood films, uh, during that transitional period when color first started to be used, color was used for more spectacle sorts right. of films. And, and the more serious a film was, the more likely it was to be filmed in black and white because people had that association with it. So apparently that carried over also into Japanese cinema as well. So that drove him to decide to use black and white for this film. And I think also <clears throat> it's a very violent film at times. And I think he... <laughs> um, the picture that you have behind you right now obviously yeah. is an illustration of that um and so that that would also That's pretty much the main picture you'd see if you saw the dvd case right that that would also the use of black and white would would maybe um um reduce the the the, the horror of of the physicality <laughs> i suppose yeah i guess the flip side would be something like under the blossoming cherry trees where the the blood is foregrounded and also well, shows. yeah right which is the opposite right so um and, and i think i think he wanted to i think he wanted to mute um that that horror that's associated with that and and uh foreground the emotion in this film and so the use of black and white does that also quite well because it mm -hmm. draws your attention to more so to the to the characters because there's less i guess noise and again that gets to this sense of the film as a as an example of, of pure cinema because you know, it, it's just so so razor focused on on these essentials of of cinema and and also of, of human ex experience and how cinema uh, conveys human experience to the audience 
Another way that I thought was interesting and in how it foregrounded its meta aspects was the double casting of Iwashita Shima as both the wife and the courtesan or the prostitute uh, in both roles. In She's stunning in everything. Oh yeah, can I can I just confess that I'm in love with her now? <laughs> <laughs> she's amazing. She's beautiful, and she's such an incredible actress. She has such range and so much depth. Mm -hmm. And anytime she's on screen, I'm just completely captivated by her. Now we've now seen. Well, you've seen more than me, but I've now seen eight films with her, and yeah. these characters are so distinctive from each other. Oh yeah, yeah, very different. Um, I I thought I thought that was I it didn't seem gimmicky to me his the, the double casting, because um that that is I think he jokingly said he did it to save money, but uh, actually the Kabuki Theater has a long tradition of of characters performing more than one role. Well, I was going to ask, is and there was, a reason behind this? Is this a it's more than just a stylistic choice. It has to be. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I think he was definitely trying to emphasize how that dual nature of, of the woman in Japanese society, which is that the, the, a woman uh, in such a patriarchal society as Japan tended to fall within these very restrictive roles. And or so having a it better perform... phrase, it really is Madonna or whore. Right, Madonna or whore, right? The 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 wife or the or the um, the, you know the the prostitute, the yeah, the mistress, right? Um, uh, the one you know was the um, domestic role in raising the children, and the other was for pleasure, but always in relation to masculine desire. Um. And I, I think having her perform both of those roles was was to further emphasize that 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 dichotomous split mm -hmm. uh, that existed for for women for much of Japanese history. Society continues to be that way today in many ways. Still, yeah, yeah. Well, as I understand, women are more liberated, but still very much pushed into a certain corner. They and are, but but it's by degrees, you know. So um, what really triggers, so we already talked a bit about um, this, the deep uh, passion uh, that, um, sorry, Jihei has for, um, I don't know why I'm stumbling over my words. We already talked uh, about the passion Jihei has for uh, Kahari. Kahari, Yes. And he has to ransom her from her uh, John. I don't know what you call that the role in that world. So she really is a sex slave. The courtesan, yeah. Literally a, a sex slave, right? Yeah, yeah. She's um, she's essentially working off her, you know. <laughs> what do you make of Osan? initially helping him to raise the money to free her what well, is she what did she join in this kind of crusade this plays into the something we spoke about 
in relationship to to other Japanese films and, and to Shunida specifically is that concept of giri, which is definitely a play in the in this film. In fact, the whole tension of this film is the uh, tension that exists between uh, a ninjo, which would be desire, and giri, which would be duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's that uh, his desire for um, uh, Koharu and then there's his duty to his wife but then there's also some desire for his wife and there's also some duty to Koharu right it's not one and the other it's it's sort of a mixture of both with unequal amounts distributed between of them and what and how much um so with kaharu the desire outweighs the giri and with his wife the giri outweighs the the desire or the the ninjo you know and so it becomes of this interplay um between these two aspects of japanese society which were uh which were you know commonly uh in um tension with one another mm-hmm. so giri uh has all of these different what there are there are as many types of giri as there are types of relationships and so it it is in some sense um koharu's fate in some way uh would be affected by uh osa because if he were to leave her and and not try to uh, uh, remove her from this life that she's living, then in some sense, Osan, if she stood in the way, she would owe Giri to Koharu. Oh. And Koharu, uh, you know, it, and from Koharu's perspective, the fact that she would be taking um, Jihei away from Osan then she would be owing Giri to Osan. So all of these people, you know, even though there's no, and I don't, Osan and, and Koharu never appear on screen with one another, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. There was no split screen or anything like that, or mm-hmm. <laughs> shooting over the shoulder with a different actor, that sort of thing in this film, because they're, they're at no time are they on screen with uh, one another. Um. Nevertheless, that because they have that common common uh, bond through Jihei, they've become intertwined also uh, with regards to Giri. So I understand all that. That's a really helpful explanation. Mm-hmm. But then, why does Osan's father come in and and throw this all away? Say, no, you must divorce her. You are absolutely wrong. You have the wrong moral center. You are doing things incorrectly. I demand my wife leave you or my daughter leave you. And I'm going to leave you to your own fate because Because, you are a disgusting human being. Because Jihei owes Giri to her father. Okay. (laughs) This gets very complicated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It gets calm. It's a web. (laughs) And and because he's not respecting um, the father-in-law to which he owes Giri because he's not meeting that obligation, that duty to the father-in-law because of his actions uh, in, in his betrayal of Osan. Um, then he's not 
meeting the obligations of uh, the husband and the father. So therefore, uh, Jihei is pulled between two worlds with uh, no ability that, to escape what... the two worlds. And that's right. part of the tragic fate that leads him to a suicide. Correct. This is actually kind of a classical Western <laughs> vision of a, of a tragedy then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because this is a man who had a certain status in his life and through his own bad choices and actions has brought right. uh, brought death and dishonor upon himself. Right. So he's he's torn between the morality of obligation and his his desires. And it's hard, you know, it's difficult. But you can't divorce feel... his obligation from his desires because he has an obligation no. based on those desires. Correct. <laughs> so then it gets twisted, right? Right. Which is also part of the point. Everything is just twisted up into this knot that is just irreconcilable. Well, and, you know, it... it because it's then, complete... because, and there's, uh, of course, we should say there's uh, another, the rich man of the town who's also trying striving to free Kaharu. So there's this battle there between right. them too. And she's torn because, on one hand, she'll have some level of uh, financial safety. Uh, uh, you know, Jihei is not a wealthy man. They He's have to, paper they have to hawk their kimonos. Yeah, to, right the wedding kimono in order to um, be able to pay some of the ransom. Uh, and so in that way, and the town people hate Jihei when they, when he confronts, uh, when he confronts her at the brothel, uh, they tie him up basically and humiliate him. So he's this very kind of low life figure in a way. Jihei is, is just this man who, Maybe had ambitions, actually had a really nice business, and just sacrificed everything for his own hubris, his own desires. Yeah. Desires. It's a cautionary tale. You know, it's hard to feel uh, any kind of sympathy for him because, you know, like you said, he's 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 not a, he's not a um, he's not a well liked person in the film by the other characters. He's willing to give up his wife, and he has two children as well, yeah. and and leave them fatherless because of this, because of this, uh, you know, um, the, the, this jealousy that that has arisen because this other man has expressed interest in in uh, Koharu, and uh, there's the scene where the brother uh, pretends to be a samurai, and she. Um, Asks the brother, Koharu asks the brother to to take to rescue her and to take her away, so that uh, Jihei would be um, absolved of this of this desire for her and this this uh, this ultimate obligation he has to commit suicide because she doesn't she doesn't want to be responsible for for that to mm -hmm. occur. You know, um, it's it's so com the 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 complexity of it. I think it's so interestingly uh, illustrated by uh, Osan sending a letter to Koharu, and she asked her to she asked Koharu to release Jihei from 
this pledge to commit suicide, and she's not doing it for herself. She's doing it for Jihei. Right. Which, again, speaks to this this whole concept of obligation and, and duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, o- overwhelming desire. Or what, you know, to what degree and to to what extent do you place emphasis on one above the other? Desire versus duty. Yeah. And the fact there's never an easy resolution to that just shows the fact that right. um, these are eternally going to be in conflict with each other with no possibility for a human to navigate that. Right. Right. Uh, the ending is as powerful and devastating as you could ever want in a film. Yes. Uh, we're ta- we talked about Kurosawa endings, but this ending is just so bleak and uh, so perfectly realized for what it is. Mm-hmm. I just sat there slack-jawed, honestly, at, at the it very It begins end. with the bridge and ends with the bridge. And of uh-huh. course, the bridge is such a, a rich metaphor, isn't it? It's a bridge between life and death. Um, between the known and the unknown, it's a place. It's a, it's a, a what, what is that called? A something space. Uh, I can't liminal think space. of it. Liminal space, an liminal interim space. space. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and uh, Jihei hangs himself from a gate. Right. So he's in view of everybody, and he's assisted in it. People right. climb the ladder, and uh, a man climbs the ladder, and. Hangs the rope up for him too. Now that's one of the uh, well, behind the, the, cur- the curico. Yeah, yeah, it's the curico who assists him, right? Because of course they're the they're the fates. You know, they're the they're the they're they're the ones pulling the strings. And it, it's an interesting thing how how readily the characters go along with those uh, with those manipulations that the curico are are committing throughout the film. It's almost like they they have as much of an understanding of their fate as the curico does. And they're as willing they to go forward they toward do. this thing. Right. right. They're when, as willing to go. When they, Jihei they, cuts off his top knot. Oh, so they he, could look like a priest and she could look like a nun? Yeah. 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 Uh, he's saying, I can move into a different social caste. I can be a mm-hmm. different person, but I can't really escape who I am either. Right. Maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe this will help me a little bit in the afterlife, but. The fact is, my my choices have doomed me. Right. Uh, I have a oddball question for you, mm-hmm. which is one I've been debating. Do you think this is a noir? <laughs> well, uh, noirs are some of the best noirs have such a healthy dose of fate to them <laughs> that's really what i started thinking about yeah uh, so in that sense <laughs> it certainly i mean cinematically speaking it has all of the elements of noir it has such a wonderful use of light and shadow um characters coming in and out of of shadows right um the inability to escape fate your own yeah. temptations yeah. taking the best of you. Mm-hmm. Um, Black and white morality. Yeah. Right and wrong. <laughs> I think this is, 
moral uh, ambiguity that lies between them. Yes. That's well, that's why that really came to mind. And I, the more I play with that idea, the more I think it has to be seen. Maybe since it's 1969, it's a neo-noir, Japanese neo-noir. But it's, it's a noir in a different way than Pale Flower is. Oh, yeah. Although it does tread somewhat similar ground. So all throughout the film, and again, I'm going back to this idea of pure cinema, and again, the relationship with Rear Window, all throughout the film, there's very little exterior scenes. Almost all of the film takes place in these small sets that are very enclosed. Um, and the, again, that emphasizes the theatricality of it, right? Because it seems like a stage. And Himiko did that as well. There was always a very uh, omnipresent sense of a, of a, of a uh, theatrical setting. Um, and he... Yeah emphasizes that with uh the wonderful use of the ukiyo uh prints and the calligraphy uh that's uh dominating these characters in the backgrounds all throughout this film oh, so wonderful scene where they go to the to his stationary shop and there's the japanese characters on the floor it's just so beautiful yeah really striking i mean way sort of, of bring the character yep. to life and when the father comes to visit them at the house he drops into a little pit there um, yeah. in the middle of their house as he's kind of contemplating what he should do mm -hmm. oh, it's just wonderful and the way he <clears throat> uses the the light and the darkness and, and how he's he's backlit a lot of those uh, um artworks um or or the calligraphy uh, to, to to really emphasize the the uh, the light and the darkness uh, within the within the image, but also within the image in front of it as well. Yeah, is to kind of draw a line underneath it. But then at the end of the film, here's this infinite space that he's referring to in that phone call at the beginning of the movie, because now they're in this exterior shot with this uh bridge and oh and then of course the cemetery where they where they make love at yeah, the end the of the cemetery and then the field and then the bridge right. the cemetery the field and then the bridge right and so now the now we've opened up and now it's like we're we're outside the artifice of it now we're in that what he calls the infinite space i thought that was really interesting yeah um because it's not it's it, what he what it is what I think it is what he's saying with infinite space is that's the transition from the theater the theatrical elements of the film to the cinematic elements of the film. I liked that a lot. I was thinking around very different lines. Oh, My really? Thinking was the uh, interior artificial world is the world mm -hmm. of life. Um, they go to the ceremony, they go out, a cemetery, excuse me, they go outside and they're transitioning from the safe world into the unsafe world, from the, uh -huh. from the physical world into the metaphysical world. I like that. So they go to the cemetery, obvious symbolism there, yeah. and then to the field, which is a liminal space. 
Correct. And the gate, which is the beginning of a journey to a, di- a new place. Right. Gate is always a, the, the transition, a transition. Right. Uh, and so they are now moving to their, I don't know what the Japanese tradition would hold, their ultimate karma. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to spend the entire time talking about this one film. I, we got to mention the music is by Toru Takamitsu again. Yes. And as always, it's just, it, it's subtle, but uh, deeply, like profoundly kind of upsetting in a way that just adds so much to the film. Takamitsu. Um, he somehow worked on all the great Japanese movies of the <laughs> of his era. Yes. Yeah, he's incredible. Um, I wanted to say just a couple of things. The um, you just went to a David Lynch um, festival. Uh, yeah. Festival, right? So, did you watch Lost Highway? Uh yes, I did. I watched oh. Lost Highway. So, was, this film had a couple of of Lynch resonances to me. Uh, one of them, the the Kuriko seem these these guys that were just kind of like menacingly walking around in the background all throughout the film and appearing at different intervals at different times um reminded me quite a bit of the um in twin peaks uh the return they they had these characters called the woodsmen who were these mm-hmm. like dark menacing characters who were kind of like pulling the strings all throughout the film i thought lynch had to have seen this movie because i was thinking of that and then at the end of the film he uh the Kuriko or they're they're hoping to hang him they they hand Jihei the sword uh which which he stabs uh Koharu with mm-hmm. when he kills her and all I could think of was Lost Highway at the end of that film where that uh I forget the actor's name he just died recently he was in in cold blood Robert Blake Robert Blake and he's in that kind of like kabuki Oh, yeah. uh, makeup yes, no. without the eyebrows right and at the end of the film he hands bill pullman the gun with which he shoots mr eddie i wouldn't have i wouldn't have connected <laughs> thought, these two films but i could i think i think david lynch has seen this movie <laughs> is the bill pullman balthazar getty combo kind of like our our female dual role here Oh yeah, that's right. He also has the dual role of yeah. Now that you mention it, Patricia Arquette playing both characters. I I think he must have seen this movie because there was just so many um, Lynch uh, uh, touches. I mean, Lynch has this fascination with identity and the transience of identity and the complexity of identity that he's played with. Well, since Eraserhead, really. Yeah, I'm sure it's coincidental, but. I thought it was interesting, worth mentioning. Yeah, I, um, Elephant Man is is very much about identity perception versus reality. Oh, uh, for so sure. Surface versus anyway. We need to go off on so, Elephant Man. I did. I did want to share a few. Just a, a one one more thing. Uh, that the characters' names. I like to look look up characters' names, particularly for these Japanese films. And Jihei, uh, in Japanese, means either the evil of the times social withdrawal hmm. or a pretext or excuse 
text or excuse. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. And Koharu uh, essentially means late autumn. Okay. Which has a, a very kind of like poetic sort of um, um, suggestive beauty to it, right? Uh, and then uh, Osan, this you'll like this. Osan uh, means either birth or childbirth or kitchen maid or kitchen duties. Wait, I got to stop you before that. Ushida <laughs> appeared in Ozu's film Late Autumn. Oh, that's right. He was the lead character, if I'm, if my research, I haven't seen it, but I believe she's one of the main <laughs> characters, right? Yeah, so there's an interesting resonance. <laughs> huh. And it's about a woman being forced to marry. And right. Here's a woman who's married, whose right. marriage is quite unhappy, and she's tied up in these complicated wow, you just get you start to think about the spider web, like like we were saying. Oh yeah. Uh maybe we'll spend a little less time on these other two movies. Maybe uh <laughs> yeah. well and I, I don't know, fifteen minutes you know, each or something. Particularly uh uh Sharaku. I'm not sure how much uh discussion that film requires. Uh, but it will give us an opportunity to discuss late Shinoda as opposed to earlier Shinoda. Burakan is um, a, a movie I have mixed feelings about. I, I Part of me really enjoys this film, and then another part of me feels like this is a movie that um, is sort of reminiscent of um, a lesser Altman in a way. <laughs> um that the whole is never more than the sum of its parts uh there's some really there's some really great moments in this movie but it just doesn't come together for me and tonally it's just kind of like all over the place what did you think of it i think you summed it up really well i could never quite connect to all the different storylines as they were going and there were mm -hmm. elements to it i thought were so interesting like the boy wearing the death space mask and wandering through this film interesting resonance to the previous film we discussed um i thought the color for what i could make of it with the version i was able to see uh yeah. was vivid and beautiful as always and uh quite interesting cinemascope and, and i think the uh these these two movies we're going to talk about too are interesting in that they're both deliberately discussing the rebellions against a government that represses uh, free thought, free expression, um, sees free expression as sinful. And so um, I think these these two movies are also interestingly kind of in dialogue with each other. And I thought the way the rebellion happens and the way that people are kind of transformed by this way that they're pushed into feeling like they must revolt in order right. to preserve who they are was a really interesting portrayal of motivation. In other words, it's not out of economic uh, requirements. In fact, the prime minister is probably right that from an economic standpoint, they need to pay attention to rice production and factory production uh, in order to lift up their society at that time. But this, this really kind of a meditation to me on what it means to have pleasure taken away from you. 
right. that a society really needs a certain amount of freedom in order to be obedient. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Which a is a particularly Japanese view of things. Sure. Because if you're oppressed too much, obviously you're going to have to, you'll feel like you have to rebel because you can't ever truly be yourself. So thematic, I thought it was a pretty powerful movie. Uh, I didn't really click in the movie until pretty close to the end when the rebellion actually happens. And yeah. I thought the fireworks scenes, for example, and all the stuff around it was really interesting and kind of very beautiful in its own way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so visually, I mean, I really enjoy visually, both, both of these films, uh, uh, visually speaking, are, are I mean, I know we didn't have the best quality uh, copies of the films, but visually, I mean, both of these films are are quite stunning. Yeah, uh, the the attention to the uh, sets and and the attention to detail is 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 nothing short of amazing, really. So we get scenes like the gambling scene where the gambler walks away, and he's there. They attempt to humiliate him. You're gonna walk around with your winnings, and that <laughs> you want to stick around long. And he's like, no, no. Now I can afford sending clothes for my family, and he yeah. walks away and it kind of subverts like some of the philosophy in Pale Flower. At the same time, we get like a lot of stuff in brothels and beheadings and stuff like that. It feels very kind of standard Shinada. To yeah. your point, well, it's, it like, it's has... like Altman saying, I'm going to scramble these characters up together and see what happens. Right. See what happens. It, 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 it the, the drifters and, and the outcasts and the thieves and the prostitutes um, who, who make up the, the, the population of these pleasure quarters of the Yukio um, really were attractive um, uh, types, characters for a Japanese new wave filmmaker like Shinoda, mm -hmm. right? And and that having that outsider status um, and and sort of reacting against the the um, the powers that be. Uh, to me, it had just a little bit of the energy of that kind of 1960s, early 1970s um, political uh, um, youth in revolt. The new youth in revolt. The... Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so this movie came out. I I believe this movie came out in 1970, right? Yeah. So it's kind of made right in that time period when the youth all over the world were in retaliation against the elder generations, you know. Mm -hmm. And this movie is just full of that. Um, th this is another example of the Ninjo versus Giri. Uh, but this is a movie that obviously has... Uh, as its theme, the importance of um, ninjo, right? Uh, that it's it's definitely uh, sort of um, offering a vision of hope or or of liberation. Liberation, right? And and so. 
if you look at the student protests of the 60s, which is what Shinada came out of, um, versus the uh, the um, repressiveness of the the tempo reforms of, of the 1840s that this film is addressing. And it's drawing some very definite correlations between the era in which Shinada made the film and the repressiveness of the Tokugawa shogunate at that time. Yeah. And their attempts to sort of lay out all of these reforms that were moralistic in nature, um, which was much similar to, say, like, you know, the, the silent majority of the Nixon era, you know, trying to uh, repress the, the, the student movements uh, among the new amongst the new left, like in the United States, as it has that kind of vibe to it. Yeah, it does. Uh, nevertheless, or the French, or the French yeah, in the streets in nineteen sixty-eight, or right, uh, yeah, right, all over the world. So, and something similar happened in Japan as well. So, you know, it it, it definitely has that vibe, but it, it still manages to transcend that. I still think you can watch uh, the film now. And enjoy it for for what it's worth, but I, I I think that the 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 basic energy of the film came out of that, right? What is and, the bunraku? Is it a lower class person? Is it an entertainer? What is the definition of bunraku? The uh, bur burakan burakan, excuse me. Uh oh, the bunraku. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So so yeah, right. Um, or bunraku. Um, what is that again? Um, I can look it up too, but uh, just Unraku. Oh, they're puppets. That's right. Oh yeah, that's the puppet theater, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And so, well, yeah. And I, I was, I was debating what that means. Then, the scandalous life of these puppets well no it's it's literally Bur it's burakan Bur is, oh, is, yeah yeah burakan is is a like a ruffian oh, okay. okay yeah right sorry i i sent us off on a tangent there so so yeah i mean so where you had like the 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 tension in in double suicide is is between theater and cinema uh in burakan it's it's as you said. It's it's about um, rebellion um, and the the potential for revolution. But but to me, it 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 doesn't ever seem to give itself the space to elaborate on any of these characters that it's presenting uh, to the audience. They're 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 never they're, everything is sort of sketched out. Uh, and it never seems to uh, move beyond that in any in any way. It's it's a very kind of superficial film in that sense. There's some funny moments. Uh, I mean, the whole the whole tension that exists between uh, geez, I can't think of the character's name, but uh, uh, Iwashita Shima. Um, uh, uh, oh, uh, Najiro. Who's mm -hmm. wonderfully played? I, I forget the actor's name who plays Najiro, but he's so wonderfully expressive. And Katsuya Nakadai. Yeah, it's a great performance. Um, 
very comedic and he has that uh, repressive mother akuma who you know who won't allow him to marry uh michitose who's performed by iwashita shima she's wonderful as usual uh you know and he's throwing her over the cliff <laughs> multiple times uh oh Jiro. that yeah, that really did make me laugh a lot yeah and uh you know and then at the end of the film she's like sleeping between them you know <laughs> and then you know he he picks her up and he's gonna go throw her off the cliff again and and there you see the guy at it, you see him at the beginning of the film he's making caskets uh, right. And then at the end of the film, as he's walking out, you see the guy, the casket maker again, uh, plying his wares. Uh, so you know, they, there's some wonderful uh, moments in the film. Uh, How you know, you it's, forget Nakadai. Nakadai's bit was in so many great Japanese films. Nakadai, yes, wonderful yeah. actor. Yeah, Kaidan, uh, Harakiri, yes. The Human Condition. Yes. Uh, I just couldn't think of his. I just couldn't think I of know, his. Just teasing you. <laughs> so you know i i i think and 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 the the uh where where is in an altman film say like shortcuts where you have all these different characters and all these different plot lines uh unfolding and some of them are lighter than others and some are darker than others some have a, a more comic tone uh and some have a far less common, more tragic tone, for example. Uh, the tone, whatever the the uh, whatever the the degree of comedy versus tragedy that's taking place uh, in between each of these characters or sets of characters in an Altman film, the tone remains consistent throughout. I mean, Altman's a master at that. Whereas in this film, it, it danced between like political uh, intrigue and and comedy and uh, romance. It just yeah, couldn't it just seem to find its voice. You know, it was too jarring, transitionally speaking. I enjoyed it, but I didn't think it was like a. I, I thought there was so much that was lacking in it as well. Yeah, and, you know this. This film is bookmarked, or it, it, one side is double suicide, and the other side is silence. Mm -hmm. I think both of those are just more successful films in general. Yes, yeah. I, I, I you know, there's still some sticking with me quite a bit. There's some wonderful uh, images in this film. Uh, we spoke about the the um, the sets and and how wonderful they are. Uh, there's some really kind of like. Uh, expressionistic touches like you know that red moon and it's bathed the fields and like red glow or the scene where the uh, uh, the revolutionaries come running uh, toward the screen and they, and there's that uh, crescent moon and and it's all this smoke and they're running out of it it's just like really brilliant uh, visuals um that's the, the thing. Sky. I was on board with this film, and then it just didn't quite deliver what I was hoping for, which is fine. It's not yeah. a tragedy by any means. It, it just was a bit disappointing. Yeah, it just. It, I think, and I, I think the reason I was, I was making reference to the student moon of the '60s and things like that is, I think some of the edge or maybe some of the appeal of this film is lost without that context. Yeah. It doesn't really transcend its moment like Double Suicide is 
is a, a timeless film. Yeah. In many ways, this this film feels to me to be very much of its time. I think so. And it also just doesn't succeed at, at what it aims to do. No. Um, and I don't think Bunraku does either. Or Sha- Sharaku, excuse me. Sharaku, yeah. Sharaku uh, is the story of a man who had been working. Okay, so this based on a Japanese legend of the man who did those all those famous portraits of Japanese people um, in the early 18 or in the late 1700s right yeah so there was a there was a period in in japanese art history uh in the 17 uh i'm sorry yeah 17th and 18th centuries um or i'm sorry 18th and 19th centuries i believe yeah, yes late 1700s to early 1800s it was called the uh, genroku period mm-hmm. um and it was a great flowering of Japanese culture during the Tokugawa shogunate. And it was afforded by the relative peace uh, that the, um, I'm sorry, it was the 17th to the 18th centuries. I'm so sorry. Six, about 1688 to 1704, right around there. Yeah. I mean, this film was set like around 17, the 1790s. Right. So, so, um, that, but the period where where all of these arts developed was during the Genroku period. Like mm-hmm. haiku came into its relative form that it's known okay. today. Uh, there was these woodblock prints that you, you know a lot of people associate Japanese culture with, like hokusai and and uh, and um, other artists who made use of woodblocks. Uh, then there was these yukioi prints um which was another art form uh, principally was depictions of kabuki performers um and uh the the best known of these um artists was the utamaro who in the film is performed it kind of reminded me a bit of amadeus you know oh, yeah. um, the the 1985 film by Milos Forman uh, and uh, what's his name Tom Hulse I, I believe performs Amadeus is this kind of like cackling idiot mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who's this you know nevertheless still a, an artistic genius and it reminded me a bit of that this portrayal of Utamaro in this film because he's this great you know ukiyo ukiyo means floating world by the way okay. uh, and it's kind of like this. Um, this period in in the early 17th century centered around Tokyo, uh, where this these class they were called the shonen. Um, uh, it was essentially a merchant class uh, began to develop, and essentially what they were indulging in and, and patronizing, and some of this was depicted in Burakan, was the um, Kabuki theater, you know, geishas, courtesans in the pleasure district. And the pleasure districts came to be known as the Yukio, the floating world. And so these these artworks, um, these paintings and and monochromatic prints and also color prints started to be introduced. And it was another, it was another like money-making thing. It was, it was almost like the uh 
is it's almost like the artistic Japanese equivalent of like a teenage movie, ma uh, you know, magazine where <laughs> pictures of like, you know, the uh, or or what would the equivalent be a magazine where there's celebrity photographs in the magazine, yeah. you know? Yeah. People uh, us or people or whatever yeah. yeah so um it was like the equivalent of that and so these these were the great artists associated with it and uh he was um shuriku was an artist a, a real uh artist who um not much was known about him he was he only i i believe there's only about 600 of his prints um in existence uh, the uh, time period in which his work was uh, published was only 10 months. Mm -hmm. um, it was immediately met with disapproval because of the way he depicted the Kabuki actors. Instead of portraying them in a respectful manner like uh, Utamaro did, or an idealized manner, he emphasized their um, kind of like... Um, who they really are they're, well yeah like they're they're he tried yeah, to convey the energy of them on on um the stage and to get across their personalities through this visual representation and mm -hmm. so he would show like unflattering details about them like grimaces on their face or different kinds of flaws so not an idealistic representation at all and so the reaction against it at the time, he was ahead of his time, in other words, uh, was so negative that they stopped uh, um, publishing uh, his his artworks. And it wasn't until much later that he his his work came to be uh, respected as, you know, like he was like a Yukio, Yukio a master on the level of Hokusai, that sort of thing. Right. And nobody knows nobody knows who he is. There was a lot of speculation um that he may have been um a kabuki actor because he had that kind of understanding of what it what kabuki acting involved he had such an intimate understanding of it and so this film follows from that that um thesis or that theory i should say that he was a he was in fact a kabuki actor or performer in some way and this is another film that I wanted so much to enjoy and just never quite came together for me. Right. I like the idea of, of Shuriku as this, this man who's creating this art, which is um, outside of what's acceptable in the society, both by the government. Again, we have a repressive government. Interesting how, uh, how Shinoda keeps coming back to that concept. Right. Um, but also... Uh, he's creating this art that's not flattering that people are angry about that makes people uh, frustrated with. And so like theoretically, it's a very interesting idea for a film. Mm -hmm. Also this idea of filling in this character with someone who you've never seen, who, who is a, a true outsider. Uh, you have almost a carte blanche to create whatever you want to create. Uh, but this film just never really fills itself i never get an idea of why i should care about sharaku beyond the point that he's a amazing artist right i liked again this nihilistic ending that we've now seen in a couple of films here mm -hmm. 
but it just doesn't quite ever really completely come together. He's still too much of a cipher, really, to me. It's got some wonderful Shinoda touches to it. It's got those great uh, periodic freeze frames that he likes to use. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it has Iwashidashima in a role that she's under underutilized. Um, the problem I have with this film, unlike so many of his other movies, which are more successful, is that as stunning as the visualization, uh, the visuals are, as as wonderful as the sets are, and man, are they immersive! They are just absolutely yeah. incredible, and the scale of them is something else. I mean, it's really something to behold. Good point. The amount of of attention to detail that went into this, from you know. Um, from that standpoint is just incredible so this was clearly a big budgeted film um large crowds too large crowds yeah so uh the the score by uh takamitsu uh, interesting enough that he didn't do the score for for burakon and it's very noticeable that yeah. the, the score was very jarring and 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 didn't fit the film at all and suffered from a lack of of takamitsu i would say but this film has that wonderful takamitsu score as well which is reminiscent and i think it came out around 1995 so um yeah. it it's definitely has the the feel of a late takamitsu score it sounded a bit like ron at times his mm -hmm. score for ron uh so really impressive there but so there there are some uh positive things to say about it it just didn't give the room to the characters to really breathe. I mean, it was so interested in all of these um, in a, in in conveying all of these different elements of that time period that that it seemed like the furniture got in the way of the story. If you follow, yeah, I do like there that. Was just there was too much. Um, Shinoda just seemed seemed to want to uh, uh, explore all of these different kind of like sketches almost. It was it was a very um, choppy film, uh, very op episodic, uh, yeah. and and nothing seemed to really come together. There wasn't any real overarching narrative to it as a follow through. There were a few things like you know the publisher got in trouble for failing to fill out a proper form or something like that there was some suggestions of the the government wanting to crack down on on um on the uh the yukio um 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 districts and 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 the artworks and and the pushback there which wasn't i don't think historically accurate because uh, um what was actually driving that was famine that occurred at the time, which they didn't really get into in this film. Yeah. No um, one's starving in this film. No one's starving in this film now. Yeah. Uh, so there, you know, there, this, this idea of the, the government again, like in Burakam where the government's kind of turning against um, frivolity. <laughs> and there's this push for a push against decadence and, and a push toward a more, more uh, morality. Um, there's hints of that. There's a hints of a love story. There's hints of this. There's hints of that. And as as great as the uh, actors are assembled here, and I can I can point to Iwashirashima's uh, 
the the fact that she's sort of didn't really leave an impression on me in this film mm-hmm. is probably the best illustration of what I'm getting at when I say that I could, I could not achieve any connection with any of these characters. Well, and the um, thing is like, there's a lot here for, for me to, I would have really enjoyed if it had just been a little bit more uh, upfront with it. Uh, I like the idea of the rebel artist creating these works that are uh, kind of do- portraying the society in a different way. We didn't mm-hmm. touch on the fact that uh, that Shuraku is basically in the in the ownership of his boss, who's both right. uh, making money off him and complaining about the work he's creating. There's so much interesting there. And it just never feels like that pays off. And then there's this almost idea of this art as this rebellious art form, these drawings mm-hmm. as this rebellious art form. And again, that never quite really solidifies into anything more than just a, a reach in that direction. It almost right. felt like, yeah, as you're saying, like he got so involved in the production design, he forgot to yeah. pay as much attention as he should have to uh, the story and and building it up in the right in, in the way that really affected us, the viewers. So it's kind of I mean, like it's, I, I don't know if we need to dwell on it too long, right? It, no, no. It's a good it, your your comparison to a late Altman film makes sense. It's like uh, it's like the company his movie about the ballet dancers. It's fine, mm-hmm. but it's you know it it it's on the C tier. I didn't. I didn't make the comparison to Late Altman. You just did. I. I would. I would. I would compare it to say. I don't know. It's like Eyes Wide Shut. You know. <laughs> I feel like Kubrick was so uh, involved in making uh, London look like New York that he forgot to create compelling characters that you cared about. <laughs> and in this case, Shinoda did write and edit this film. So. Uh... Yeah. He gets the full responsibility. Yeah, it's his. It, well, I, I think uh, I thought was it Frankie Sakai who who co-wrote it. The the actor who portrays the publish uh, uh, Sutaya. Letterboxd um, just listed lists Shinoda. Sakai is the oh, really? executive producer. Oh, is the executive producer? Okay, I think Sakai was the one who became so fascinated uh, fascinated with the artist and and really was pushing to uh, make this film. Okay. But this, so, is, this uh, kind of thing happens when you do a yeah. full director watch, right? You'll you'll run into some masterpieces, and then you run into some films that are probably great if you catch them alone. But when you watch yeah. them in comparison to other films, you just realize how the shortcomings of it. Right, and it's probably a disservice to this film. Like I feel if we had maybe seen this film uh not in the same weekend as double suicide we might have been a little bit more impressed by it i don't know i i still felt uh regardless i i i still felt a little it just felt a little empty um there just didn't seem to be much to grab onto the opening of the film is great i mean where where that where that ladder pushes down on a bamboo ladder pushes down on his foot and his foot is like crushed and bleeding oh my god um, I was like, you know, I mean, that was, I was like, wow, what are we in for here? You know, <laughs> and then it just seemed to turn into kind of like a collage uh, filmmaking, um, which is fine. Uh, some scenes were more memorable than others. There didn't seem, unlike Burakan, where there's 
some scenes that are just like, you know, um, hard to forget. I mean, like, you know, at the end of the film, when they light up the, um, the shoji and uh, as it starts to go up in flames, there's that man and woman making love, you know, uh, behind it. Yeah. Uh, so just some really just great uh, striking visuals that uh, lift that film out of mediocrity. This film seems pretty well ensconced in mediocrity to me. It doesn't even have the haunting feeling that Under the Blossom Cherry Trees has, for example. Right. Demon Pond. Um, okay, so I'm going to conclude by saying Double Suicide is now at the top of my list of my favorite Shinra films. Rightfully so. I think it's the best we've seen. I think Pale Flower is probably number two on that list. I would agree. I I, I don't think it's. I don't think it, it it can even be disputed that Double Suicide isn't his masterpiece. Absolutely. So what are we going to talk about next time? Uh, well, let's take a look here. <laughs> Let me get my list up. So we've done 13 out of the 33 films he has directed. And um, I know we were talking about taking a detour and talking about John Cassavetes, but I want to keep our yeah. watch of Shinoda going too. You know, I'm a, a, a director completist. I want to watch everything. Once yeah. I get to a certain point, which this is the point, I'm in for it all. <laughs> I I was uh, going to suggest we do another uh, threefer. Okay. Uh, th this would be going back to the JD days of um, Shinoda's filmography. So it'd be One Way Ticket to Love, Our Marriage, and Love New and Old. All right. Or we could do Youth and Fury and Killers on Parade. <laughs> the three earliest well uh those would be the five earliest um youth and fury and killers on parade i think youth and fury is his first film and killer per on parade might be his second or third i maybe maybe we should do that one so one way ticket youth and fury and killers on parade no it'd be Youth and Fury and Killers on Parade, and then we would do One Way Ticket to Love, Our Marriage, and Love New and Old. Youth and Fury and Killers on Parade for our next episode. Yes. Okay. Let's do that. Let's start at the beginning. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. We'll do it. Thanks, All right. Eric. Thank As you. As always, uh, I got much more out of these films from talking to you. Same.